Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, the 21st century stage for stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. And pretty much all will be performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues who in their mild-mannered day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. None of whom, including your host, have a day of experience on the stage, and boy does it show. So hold on tight for the next story on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. Plagued by strange happenings in his San Francisco Victorian home and dreams with second lives, J.P. Pooler struggles to fend off the police and the local populace and save his sanity in part three of the story, Left Field. That lovely dream of mine that appeared? That was Thursday. By Wednesday next, and 16 dreams come true later, almost all of the blue variety. My block was overrun with looky-loos, reporters, protesters, and most of all hundreds and hundreds of guys who'd shown up waiting for the next public peep show, courtesy of my REM nightlife. In fact, it seemed like every Tom, Dick, and Perv within 500 miles was camped out on my street, some proclaiming it better than the internet and cable combined. It was truly Guy Central, and they'd staked out their seats on the sidewalk or curb or nearby walk, beers in hand, pretzels and hot wings at the ready, all of them hooting and hollering every time a dream of mine turned the street corner into the biggest adult movie house in America. Both Nathan and Jen had spent most of their free time at my place since the first dream incident, hoping to dredge up some answers to all this craziness. Currently, Jen was expecting a visit from a colleague of hers, a rather well-known scientist who'd agreed to drop by and help determine what the hell was going on. Thank God. In the meantime, I had to deal with all my house guests. JP, can't you get rid of those bar rejects out on the front lawn? I've tried. Really? I've been polite. I've been forceful. I've threatened to enlist every football team I know to run scrimmage on their asses. And... They just laugh or set up shop on my neighbor's lawns, which does wonders for relations. You're all kindred spirits. Tell them that what they're doing isn't helping. No, you don't get it. They do want to help with the dreams. They really do. That's why they've set up a suggestion box outside. So since they refuse to pull up stakes, for the time being, I might as well let them be happy campers. I think you just like how they look up to you now. Oh, now that is not true. Uh-huh. I've seen what goes on. Them having you sign their beer bellies and christen their tailgate parties. You're like their little god now. I headed to the kitchen window to peek out at the crowds outside and the vendor stands and food trucks. Yeah, well, I don't remember God's followers ever peeing in his flower beds. Look at that. I don't know. Sounds pretty par for the course to me. I just want things back the way they were. Last week, the good old days. Already I have half the neighborhood demanding I move. What is it now? Another of your G-rated dreams? I pulled the curtain back a little more. No, it's Mrs. Myers next door and her moo-moo, which to the crowd outside is hardly the stuff of Playboy. That poor woman. And she's one of my nicer neighbors too, Nate. Brings me over scones sometimes, even sticks up for me in front of my landlady. 
Is she out posting more flyers about her lost kitten? Yeah, the ones my followers tore down. Like as not the animals outside secretly adopted the poor little thing with the idea of trying to get the little kitty drunk or high. Oh, jeez. Hey, all of you, listen up. I want to see some better manners around here starting now. Got it? Okay, okay, keep it up, and I won't go to sleep tonight. Oh, brother. Yeah, right, Jen. This is worshipping. Sacrilegious jerks. Uh, JP, I'd stay away from the front door right now. Why? The police came knocking again earlier. I told them you weren't in. The police are here? Well, that's good. No, it's not good. What do you mean? Uh, city supervisor Baker, responding to public pressure, and probably thinking he's got a shot at the mayor's seat in the next election, cited you earlier today for public indecency. What? And vowed that he personally would put a stop to the showings outside. So, he sent some officers over here with a... Suggestion. A suggestion? An ultimatum, you mean? So he wants me out of the house too? Well, I am not leaving. You may not have a choice, JP. Baker said you have 48 hours to put a cork in things, or your new digs will come with the kind of bars that are liquor-free. Oh, great. Just great. Oh, and by the way, the boys in blue, they also said, keep up the good work. Yeah, of course. I could tell by the whoops and hollers outside that someone was coming up the walk, and I knew exactly who. It had been like this every day around this time. Nate, can you open the door for Tawny? Sure thing. Come on in, Tawny. Widening your fan base, I see, Miss Velasquez? They want to know when I'm going to be on out there. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet they do. They say they pray for it every day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mrs. Dobbs, my Bible-thumping landlady, had just entered the room from next door and had only heard Tawny's line about the uh, prayers of the crowd outside. Well, it's nice to know at least some people have religion around here. I started busting up laughing a little. <laughs> Maybe there's hope for mankind, after all. <laughs> Please, Mrs. Dobbs, I have a heart condition. <laughs> That's for sure. Hey, watch it, Jen. Also, thanks to Mrs. Dobbs, far more troublesome things had appeared on my doorstep, like Houston Price, a stocky media pundit who had his hand in every avenue of mass media, from cable networks to the furthest reaches of social media, and not surprisingly was a bane of everyone with any gray matter upstairs. That didn't include my landlady, unfortunately. Being the overly righteous type she was, she's only a saintly superhero on the order of Captain America, there to right all the wrongs in our society and return us to the time of Leave it to Beaver. In his 40s and surprisingly fit, Price had one of those wholesome boy-next-door faces, as well as a smug, lamb-like smile. From what I understood of his past, something downplayed or outright denied by his PR people, his early years had been remarkably different, with stories circulating about him frequenting hookers during his army days and providing alcohol and other black market items to his military pals, for plenty of moolah, naturally. Unfortunately, Mrs. Dobbs had insisted Price be allowed to scour my rental in order to bring his high-minded hand into the proceedings. And so, 
Price has shown up early the following Saturday, deeming it a national emergency. In fact, at one point in introducing himself to me, he'd actually described himself as an influencer. I had not liked the way he said it. With him there to guide others during these terribly difficult times and point out the blacker sheep among us, <coughs> like me, who posed a um, grave risk to whatever social norm they were trying to enshrine that week. Frankly, I didn't think Price believed even half of this imperiled morality stuff he was spouting. But Mrs. Dobbs sure believed it, and so did millions of others. It had served Price and his pocketbook well, putting him really above us all. Oh boy, yeah. And positioning him as this righteous dragon fighter. At first, I protested having Price at the house, with him continually getting in the way with his condescending questions, which was when Mrs. Dobbs made it clear to me that if I didn't cooperate, I'd be out on my ear. And since my landlady still lived in the other half of the duplex, and since she just wouldn't have it that Host and Price, Mr. Magnificent, would be forced to stay in some drabby, top-of-the-line hotel, she insisted he stay as her honored guest next door, partly to aid him in making little video diaries about me to post all over social media and the networks, chronicling all my deficiencies firsthand as an example to the masses, a warning of what the world was coming to. Mind if I continue my inspection of the premises, Mr. Pooler? It was Price again, ready to start his daily guided tour under the helm of my landlady, who was more than happy to point out evidence of my moral shortcomings in every single item I owned. Sure, no problem. And why not just run me over with a lawnmower while you're at it? Thinking on it, I decided on a different tack afterward and went to my bedroom, laying out some of the more heinous play toys Tawny and the other girls liked, hoping it might be wolfsbane to Mrs. Dobbs' delicate sensibilities, and as a result, maybe keep Price out of there, too. Yeah, I know. Most likely it was going to mean even more trouble for me, and my reputation. But frankly, I was getting to the point where I just didn't care what they thought anymore. Because no matter what I did, no matter how hard I tried to do the right thing, even if I found loving homes for poor little orphans, they were just going to make it sound bad to their league of concerned citizens. Like I'd blown up the Statue of Liberty. It was an absolute no-win situation. So hell, why not have some fun with it? Well, I could. While Hostin continued sniffing around, Jen came up to me, shutting down her cell phone. Uh, JP? Yeah? You know that physicist friend I mentioned? He just pulled up outside. About time. Well, yes, but... But what? Well, he's a little more than a friend. Oh, no. Oh, no. You asked your dad here? Old fart art? Couldn't you have found anybody else? Like maybe some axe murderer who eats puppies for breakfast? I would have been okay with that. It is his field. String theory, high energy physics, interdimensional studies. I would have told you before, but with all the trouble around here, I thought the less you knew, the better. <sighs> oh, God. I'll go drag him in, JP. I don't think he's going to appreciate our little audience outside. JP, what's wrong? Oh, nothing, Tawny. Except that Professor Hardass would like my head on a pike. And that's on a good day. I behaved abominably toward his little girl. Well, you did. <sighs> Let's not start that all over again. JP, he has softened over the years. Uh-huh. I peeked through the curtains. The whoops and hollers that had become so commonplace outside were dying untimely deaths in the wake of Farco's approach. 
He was just as I remembered him, the man with the eternal slouch, clad in the same old nylon navy parka and the same ever-present snowmobile boots, come winter or summer. His drab gray eyes scarily matched the silver matting of hair up top, which led in sideburns down to a silvery beard and mustache, their hair so old that they'd actually begun to yellow. Of course, their slight tinge could have been caused by the yellow curry of the flavored pumpkin seeds he was forever chewing on too. As he marched toward the house, our makeshift audience was so much Tokyo to his Godzilla. He moved aside for no one, and those who failed to clear a path were tromped on, Farco doling out jabs like scumbag and lowlife and root. Outside, I heard the inevitable trudge of heavy boots closing in, little zippers jingling. I shut my eyes, wishing it just another of my embarrassing dreams, one which would eventually evaporate. Oh, so this is what the grotto looks like. I feel blessed. Pooler. Art. Hi, sweetie. Hi, Daddy. I could already smell that awful mix of pipe tobacco, the Kmart kind, and the scent of curry coming off in waves. I was thinking I might have to get shots afterward. What, no silk robe and slippers, Pooler? No little bunny on the pocket? Need any help with the jokes, Art? Sure sounds like it. No, no, I think I can manage. Well, let me know. Wouldn't want you to strain yourself. He set down the backpack he was carrying, and opening the fridge door without asking, he started shoving stuff around, tisking at the contents and eventually tossing bottles and leftover containers onto the counter. I see the house doubles as a brewery. Lovely. If I'm going to be forced to work here, I'm going to need some drinks that don't kill brain cells. I'll make you a list pooler. I assume you can read. If not, Jen will explain, or try to. <laughs> Yeah, right, you incredible bastard. It was Farco's phone, and answering it, he clomped back into the foyer for a better signal, grumbling about his current unfortunate circumstance to his caller. I remained in the kitchen. So, Jen, I see your father's personality implant didn't take, eh? There's nothing more medical science can do? My father is my father. I hate to be the first to break it to you, but I'm almost 100% sure you are adopted. He's not so bad. Jen, tell me something good about him, please. Something I can marvel at and say, gee, he's not so much like Hitler. Well, he likes the Muppets. <laughs> the Muppets? You've got to be kidding me. No, he thinks they're great. He loves any kind of hand puppets, sock puppets, all that stuff. When I was a little girl, he'd even sew teeny ears or eyes on them. And then he'd do tricks and stuff with them to put me to sleep at night. Tricks? Voices and skits and things. He was very good at it. Oh, this I gotta see. You wouldn't happen to have any videos of these magic moments lying around, would you? Well, at least none with me. <laughs> what? It was cute. <laughs> okay, okay. Score one for your pop. He's got a thing for Punch and Judy, too. Yeah, I'll bet he does. Farco tromped back into the kitchen again, glaring at one of the nerds as he entered. Like Tawny, all four of them had also returned every day since the big screen debut of my dreams. That included Felicia's ex, a fellow named Philip. I'd actually come to like the guy, his death threats toward me now on the back burner. In fact, he and his friends were always trying to help, and currently they were acting as my makeshift sentries, keeping the hounds outside at bay. So let's get to it, shall we? The less time I spend here, the more my stomach will thank me. Has anything new happened? Just more of his dreams, Daddy. 
They seem to come from two nights prior to the physical manifestation outside. And the manifestation seems to last as long as the dream itself? About the usual REM cycle, 90 minutes. Though there's variations. So what do you think's causing it, Art? I'm asking the questions, Pooler. Now, where exactly did you purportedly go otherworldly on us? The first time in the John. So you've crossed over in other spots? Well, every few days he inadvertently discovers an opening someplace in the house. But it's open only briefly and he's always able to get out. Then the hole moves. The damn thing seems to lie in wait for me. It's kind of being a dick. Or maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe it likes you. It's your own fault for making yourself so irresistible, JP. Uh-huh. It does seem to follow JP around like a puppy dog. Not being interested in anybody else so far, thank heavens. Either way, it hasn't gotten bad enough where I feel like leaving. I just keep hoping it'll go away. I took the professor on a tour of the bathroom, Jen and Tawny hovering outside. Farco snooped around, hacked and wheezed a few times, occasionally spitting in the sink where his yellowish sludge just sat there like glue. He knocked on a couple of things and sniffed the air, finally closing his eyes as he tapped his finger on the sink. You said you jump from one location to another here, and then other times end up someplace else. Could you see anything the times you crossed over? Well, not much. Just blacks and speckly blues. The place was pretty flat, like a desert. In fact, the ground was, well, crunchy. Crunchy? You could hear your footsteps? No, I, I couldn't hear anything. And how did you feel while you were there? Well, I couldn't breathe. Like, there was no air. Which would account for the lack of sound. But my skin felt very, I don't know, tingly. Did you feel heavier at all? Heavier? When you moved around, you never felt as if you were becoming larger or taller than your surroundings? Taller? Perhaps much taller. A certain type of place, the kind Jen suggested to me on the phone earlier, might have such an effect. Well, I hardly went anywhere inside, and I couldn't see much either. So what do you think all this is, Art? Perhaps you should ask our dear guest what all this is. It was my landlady, Mrs. Dobbs, now standing at the doorway with us, accompanied by Price. I'm sure you've heard of Host and Price, Mr. Professor Farco. My apologies to the uh, scientific community for intruding. Mrs. Dobbs was right in asking me here. Occurrences of this type do not lend themselves to simple analysis for those whose moral framework diverge, that's the nicest way of putting it, from those of, well, decent people. Thus, the meaning of these events are obscure to those lost in a whirlwind of carnality and hedonism and, well, tacky decor. But of course, it's not obscure to you, Mr. Price. Well, not to give myself too much credit, but I think I have a truer moral compass than most individuals these days, especially around here, and a much better understanding of the intentions of that fellow up there. Well, how fortunate for us. Then perhaps you can tell us what's going on here. Oh, I'd be happy to. It's obvious Mr. Pooler's moral weaknesses are being used as a tool by some darker power to further undermine our crucial value systems. And that's why I've come here to fight back against this threat, which obviously recognizes an opportunity, especially given what I've been told goes on in this house by the kindly and all too trusting Mrs. Dobbs. I glanced at my landlady again, wanting to bust the Ten Commandments over her head. But she was too busy gawking at her puritanical pinup. To her, he really was a gift from above. No surprise. 
Her place next door contained, on average, about two dozen religious artifacts per room. Crucifixes, Jesus portraits, Bible quotes. But strangely, none of it had managed to rub off on her, except the nailing people to crosses part. Now, I knew friends and plenty of ballplayers were religious and, and were nothing like that, and acted with Christian charity. Like Nate, for instance, who spent a lot of his free time trying to help others in the same situation as him. So they didn't do something a whole lot worse than clean out their ears. Mrs. Dobbs, on the other hand, was one of the most judgmental, hypocritical people I'd ever known, and was no shrinking violet when it came to expressing her disapproval of particular people or groups or in dangerous animals, even, as she put it, who were more trouble than they were worth. You name it. Sometimes condemning even kindness toward others, those who truly needed it, say, charity for victims of some natural disaster, if she thought, for whatever reason, those persons <laughs> got what they deserved, and deserved a lot more besides. <sighs> Typical. But really, she was like so many people nowadays, busy making the other side, quote-unquote, look like all-out villains, horribly evil, the kind that go around tying people to railroad tracks and stuff. And hey, I was guilty of that kind of thing, too, many times. Even with Price, I found it really difficult to like him at all, given everything and his reputation. But then there were these little surprises that I never expected. For instance, one of the things in the house that actually encouraged Price that I was worth anything at all morally was some of my sports memorabilia, in particular my special Louisville Slugger, which hung from a rack on my back wall. The baseball bat being a symbol of that wholesome all-American pastime. In fact, the bat was my most prized possession, so I had no problem discussing it with him. It had been autographed by perhaps the greatest all-around player in history, Willie Mays, and made out to me, the only time I ever met the Say Hey Kid, a special treat my father had arranged for my ninth birthday. Price had seemed as enthused about it as I was, and pretty knowledgeable about baseball overall, citing Sandy Koufax's blistering fastball and the career stats of folks like Rod Carew and Whitey Ford. And for the first time that week, I actually found myself enjoying the guy's company. Turned out he'd played ball on his old college team, and had even considered entering the minors. I mean, here I'd wanted Price to be an outright gargoyle, and then I find he's a baseball nut just like me. And so I have to do all this mental recalibrating inside, all of which, in the end, meant I couldn't totally hate the guy. That is a terrible thing when you've devoted so much time and effort to it. <laughs> What a waste. Price, meanwhile, continued taking advantage of the soapbox handed to him by Mrs. Dobbs, and now Farco. Already you can see how these events have affected this whole area with this lamentable crowd outside, with their jalapeno poppers and machos grande. So tragic. And just how do you propose to remedy the situation? We've begun a series of nightly vigils of virtue, as I like to call them, enlisting millions of people linked by digital hand-holding across the country in thinking good thoughts to drive this scourge from the area. And thinking bad thoughts and much worse about me. In addition, hundreds of bake sales have popped up all over the country to sell apple pie and snickerdoodles to raise money to protect our loved ones from these unseemly apparitions out on the lawn here. Even a giant quilt is underway, made by the pure of heart showing strong, upstanding images of goodness and mom and pop and the awesome logo of my social media platform. Very inspiring. And that wasn't all. 
Price left out the part about him and Mrs. Dobbs frequently saturating the entire house with wholesomeness, pumping in sweet, upbeat, easy listening music everywhere I went, especially in my bedroom. With these special vigils and all the rest, we shall use this house as an example of our courage in this fight for the whole world to see. That's why we have all the camera phones and live streaming devices that we do, hundreds of them, to beam this battle to every corner of the globe. Oh no. This is where our side shall prevail. But if we fail, who knows what might come of it. The moral equivalent of earthquakes and floods and sandstorms and, and sinkholes and, you know, really serious stuff. Maybe even the end times. From this? Might be my end times, but not everybody else's. Well, as loath as I am to visit this, um, habitat myself, Price, I'm not one for the tired old Sodom and Gomorrah refrain. Really, sir? I suppose you have your own theory attributing this to some scientific phenomenon that's just now appeared out of thin air? Well, I've only been here 15 minutes, Mr. Price. We scientists make it a habit not to jump to any conclusions till at least 30 minutes on the job. But I'll go against the usual dictates and indulge you with a theory that my daughter and I discussed earlier on the phone. Which would be? With barely 40 hours left to me, given Supervisor Baker's ultimatum, I was suddenly grasping at any solution. We're thinking all this could be a disruption in what I'd first considered, JP. Some breach in this membrane, or brain as it's called. Brain? Pooler, we live in the third dimension, or some would say fourth if you count time. But at least 26 dimensions have been suggested or so TOE and string theory have proposed. It's even been put forward that our three-dimensional universe may, in fact, be a bubble floating within a four-dimensional cosmos, something which might explain why gravity is considerably weaker than the other three physical forces, the electromagnetic and the strong and weak nuclear forces. Uh, you've totally lost me. Put simply, our universe lies on what could be called a weak brain, while outside us, in the four-dimensional realm, may exist this other membrane, the gravity brain, from which the gravitational force actually leaks into our own. And it may be that which is interacting with us here. So this fourth dimension you're talking about is like our third dimension, but with an extra 90 degrees stuck on it, right? Well, that explains a lot. Really? Professor, I consider myself in touch with more extraordinary things, elements of the psychic and supernatural. Oh, brother, I'm surrounded. Pooler, who is this? This month's playmate? Your fashion better, Gramps. Tell me, wherever did you find your footwear? Steal it off some dead Eskimo? Uh, try to make nice, please. Professor, this is Tawny Velasquez. She was here when everything first started going haywire. How lovely. So, you've never experienced anything psychic yourself, Gramps? Clairvoyance? Out-of-body experiences? Precognition? Despite her various flights of fancy, Tawny was actually quite the realist rarely, if ever, candy-coating things, and knowing exactly how to get what she wanted, especially where men were concerned. Deep down, she probably even had a scientific mind. She just didn't have the patience for honest-to-goodness study, like Jen. She didn't have the patience for much, really, being somewhat hyper and unable to settle on any one thing for longer than two shakes. When it came to the psychic stuff, she really did believe she had some psychic powers but didn't go in for all that new-agey stuff, saying it undermined her far more logical conclusions. All part of her creative and questioning nature, and her overwhelming restlessness, which played out in so many ways in her life. Not only keeping her seriously unattached, but also turning her into a jack-of-all-trades as 
part-time real estate agent, part-time jewelry designer, part-time model, part-time daycare worker, part-time belly dancer, and part-time masseuse. Farco hadn't answered her, but Tawny refused to let it die. So you don't believe in any psychic phenomena then? I believe that people believe in a lot of things that are pretty much wishful thinking. Yeah, there may be a lot of frauds out there and a lot of wannabes trying to make up for a dull life. But there are those people who experience things who never wanted to. Right. Oh, you're so smart, Professor. Just because something's labeled ESP or psychic, you automatically toss it into your mental garbage bin. Not automatically. Farco went on with his reply, talking further about the subject, but never looking at Tawny, as if both she and her questions really weren't worth addressing. You know, Professor, when talking to me, most men end up staring at my chest. I'd be happy just to get that from you. Well, if I'm forced to blather on about psychic phenomena, I'm afraid you'll have to be happy with any response I give. He'd lit Tawny's fuse with that, but Price butted in before she could blast him. In fact, Price was considered a scholar too, or at least by his followers, but this was mostly because he often referred to himself as a scholar. However, he was a scholar unburdened by silly things like formal degrees or anything like that. Dear lady, many experts believe that the feelings psychics have are sent by, well, demons. Tarot cards, ESP, and astrology, all of that is considered by these same very educated people to be part of the black arts and may have already done a great deal of damage to our society. Be careful. In the old days, members of those types of dark professions were even stoned to death. Ah, yes, the good old times. Too bad we live in an age of common sense and reason. Farco dragged me into the living room. Who the hell is this guy? Oh, you don't know him? That's Hostin Price, sometimes known as Heavenly Hostin. He's the one who told his millions of online followers that if they didn't raise $20 million to keep his social media platform afloat and help him pay off his lawyers and a bunch of other companies to keep him out of jail for not paying his previous online media costs, that he might be, quote-unquote, recalled to the home office upstairs by, you know, the big umpire himself. He's the same guy who blessed that kid's show character, Goody Two-Shoes, last year, saying it was a bad role model because he wore sparkly socks and held out his pinky whenever he drank tea? Ah, uh, a planet-sized ass. Yep, they still make them, Art. I know, Pooler. Problem is, they're a little over quota these days. Tell me about it. Well, I want him out of here. Hey, I'd like nothing better myself, Professor, but my landlady says either he stays or I go, which means you'd be bounced too. Farco grumbled like Vesuvius. It was almost worth having Price stay. Just the same, I was still worried about the police and didn't care to see Farco bolt, perhaps taking with him my only chance at avoiding jail time and the hopes of keeping my home. That was another area where Price and I, despite our differences, had found common ground, a deep admiration for the house itself and its sturdy, bygone charm. It had taken me ages to find the place, and I loved it even more than that old Louisville slugger. I'd tried for years to buy it off Mrs. Dobbs, or at least buy my half of it, but she'd always put me off, probably due to her disapproval of me and my lifestyle. But it hadn't left me undeterred. After all, the place had a beautiful view of San Francisco Bay and the Golden Gate Bridge from its top floor. And up till almost midnight, with the windows open, you could hear the cable cars clanging away as they rose through the hills. It made for a perfect bachelor pad, guaranteed to make any babe swoon. Though that last part was just a perk, really. 
I felt more comfortable in the place than any home I'd ever known, and that included my folks' four-bedder back in Monrovia. It seemed to soak up the richness of San Francisco and its colorful history, like one of those big bread bowl soups. Lombard Street, Chinatown, Russian Hill, Immortal Candlestick, and the colorful tales of the Barbary Coast, all ingredients in a mix that felt ingrained in its every board. The little pizza places and fa noodle joints up the street, not to mention the old renovated firehouse across the way, just added to the effect, as if they were all the best of neighbors. In the end, if nothing else, I guess it actually proved to me that I really did have a romantic side, no matter what Jen and others might say, and that I truly could care about and love something. It was also why, despite all this mess, I was determined to remain in the house till the problems were solved. Dreams or no dreams. When Fargo and I returned to the kitchen, Price was still lecturing Tawny about abandoning her uh, wicked ways, with Mrs. Dobbs occasionally seconding his warnings. Hey, butt out, Mr. Price. I was the one having the conversation with the young lady. Look, Miss... Tawny. Tawny. Psychic phenomena have never been quantifiably measured to any significant extent. But... But nothing, young lady. There's never been anything conclusive. And this really is neither the time nor place for this kind of debate. You don't say. Ever thought about near-death experiences, Professor? Only where Pooler's concerned. Well, many people who've almost died have seen themselves on the operating table as the doctors worked on them, right? And always from overhead. Holy crap. Just as with JP here. Like when I saw Jen, and the time I saw Nathan at the corner store. That last one happened only the day before, Professor. Same situation, though. So if he were looking in from outside where we are, from the fourth dimension, let's say, if his mind were somehow able to access that place, might that be how he would see things if he were looking in on us? Hard to say. But it is interesting, eh, JP? I'll say. After all, if we're all part of this universe, made up of the same stuff, maybe some part of our minds can actually access this other dimension you and your daughter are talking about. In some ways, we are in tune with nature. Why wouldn't we be? We are it, and it is we. Well, I suppose. Still, everything we've mentioned here is anecdotal. These distant viewing incidents could just as easily be a result of suggestive perception, each questioner leading the other by increments toward a conclusion they both want. A folie a deux, a delusion shared by two, or more individuals in this case. Even by your daughter? Farco looked at Jen and shrugged. Even he knew it didn't wash. Unsettled, he deposited a glob of pumpkin seeds in his mouth, a sign he was thinking. Hey, I was enjoying this. Tawny, of all people, knocking old fart art off balance on his own subject? I settled onto a kitchen stool and propped my head on my elbow, waiting for more. Ever heard of Scanate, Professor? Can't say I have. It was a government program back in the 70s that tested people for clairvoyance or more specifically, something called remote seeing. Sounds like the usual waste of our tax dollars. Well, they were doing it because they heard the Russians were wasting their precious rubles on similar experiments in order to spy on us. And the US didn't want to be left behind. Psychic spies, I love it. Well, one guy they tested turned out to be pretty accurate. He wasn't your neighborhood tarot card reader. He was an LA police commissioner. And I suppose he solved crimes that way? That's probably how they heard about him. So how did they test him? They'd usually hide an envelope or other object somewhere out in the city and see if he could tell them where it was. 
They'd hide them on public playgrounds, in baseball stadiums, buildings, and his record for seeing them was quite good. Phenomenal might be a better word, given the nature of the test. But when he described the area where the envelope was hidden, he always described it as if he were looking down from above. Tawny, you are a wonder. Boy, am I glad we're sleeping together, young lady. This is like friends with perks with perks. So if JP's mind is accessing this other dimension, why couldn't his mind also send it signals? How so? Well, I've done a lot of reading on dreams. When we're awake, the different sections of the brain are always talking to each other like a little computer network, right? But when we're asleep, they lose those connections. But that doesn't stop them. Each little island goes on talking, looking for something to send its message to. Now, it's thought that dreams come from a part of the brain called the uh, inferior lingual gyrus. Well, what if when these openings occur to this other dimension, this inferior whatever, which is still looking for something to talk to, does manage to find something that accepts its signals? It sends them out to this other island, where the images truly do become larger than life. Professor, didn't you ask JP earlier if he felt larger or taller once he fell into that other dimension? Might it do the same with his dreams? Tawny, keep this up and I'm going to fall madly in love with you. But the precognitive images JP's had. He mentioned that time jumps occurred too when he'd pop from one place to another in the bathroom. Well, it's possible time's a little more malleable on the other brain. Pretzeled. There may be ways to access time backwards and forwards. Who the hell is this guy? Oh, you don't know him? That's Hostin Price, sometimes known as Heavenly Hostin. He's the one who told us. And so our disparaging remarks continued, as Mrs. Dobbs and Price just glared at Farco and me. I put a hand to my forehead, waiting it out, once more embarrassed. Farco listened too, looking unashamed of his part in the narrative. Hmm. Jen, this is the sound transfer phenomena you spoke about? Yes. They seem forwarded in about the same time increments as the bathroom time jumps you mentioned. Pretty much anything you say around here can come back to haunt you. Literally. It does seem to have a rather quirky sense of humor. Ain't that right, JP? Uh-huh. It loves to play back things. Almost all of them incredibly embarrassing. Where's my backpack? I've got some equipment in there. I should do some readings on this. I put it on the bed in the back, Daddy. It's down the hall on your left. My heart stopped remembering the stupid sex toys I'd laid out. Doubtless Jen had seen them, but that's all I needed was for Farco to get an eyeful of them. Wait, I'll get it! And I ran past them, heading for the bedroom quickly. And I would have made it too if I... if I hadn't missed the hallway entirely. I fell downward about ten feet onto something hard. Ground, I thought. Except it was harder than earth. That bizarre crunchiness coming through again. So concludes part three of Left Field. The cast included Michael Berenger as Nate, Tipperary Cork as Jen, Bruno de Montepulciano as Professor Farco, 
Claire Splann as Tawny, Phaedra Caruso as Mrs. Dobbs, and I, Michael McGee, in a performance that would make even director Ed Wood march off the set, played the role of JP. The music for this podcast came from many incredibly talented performers and musicians, such as Eric Frampton, Billy Murray, Louis Gentile, Clouseau, Sudafone, Trent Rogers, Dmitry Kolesnikov, Roman Sinek, Vitaly Koral, Yevon Onoichenko, and the fabulous Coconut Monkey Rocket. And were courtesy of websites such as the Podshow Podsafe Network, GarageBand, and Pixabay. Most of the sound effects were courtesy of SoundSnap and Pixabay. A full rundown of the musicians or song and composition names can be found on the music page of the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. So that's it for this episode. Check back for episode four of Left Field or subscribe or follow us. And please let your friends know about us too. All that'll help a great deal in making more programs here. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians. It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun. <laughs>